Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. Have you ever had a time in your life where you felt like God was maybe trying to get your attention? Uh, maybe poking you a little bit or prodding you to change something, do something. Um, it's hard to explain always why that feeling is there or all the different circumstances that make you feel like that. But maybe you know what I'm talking about. There was a sin in your life that you hadn't dealt with uh, or that kept coming up and it just felt like there was something in your conscience, something that every once in a while when the preacher would get up to talk, it felt like he was staring at you. Uh, But it felt like God was just pushing you or trying to encourage you to get that right. And maybe it wasn't something that you were doing that you needed to stop. Maybe it was something you needed to start doing that you realized you should be doing more with your life or serving God in a certain way that you just had been negligent in or resistant to. Uh, and you felt like God was trying to get you there. You ever had that? I believe that's biblical. I believe that's true. And I, I believe that there's a story in scripture that I'd like to share with you where you can see what that looks like and maybe how that felt. Um, I appreciate the reading there in Acts 26. I want to contrast that scripture with this scripture here in Acts 9. This is actually the first time Luke records the event of Saul's conversion. Paul tells that story two more times in chapter 22 and chapter 26. And each time we get slightly different or more information. There's like a fuller picture of that scene. Uh, But look here with me in Acts chapter 9, starting around verse 3. It says, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, the rest of that story of when Paul is in Damascus and Ananias comes to him and tells him the things he needs to hear, that's very important and all a very, uh, that, that's a part of the story that we have to pay attention to. But for now, I want you to think about this interaction that Paul had with Jesus. He is walking from Jerusalem to to Damascus with policemen or an entourage of guys. He's going up there to arrest some people and bring them back to Jerusalem. And on the way, this happens to him. Now, if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, uh, your verse 4 sounds different than everybody else's. Um, Yours will read, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads or to kick against the pricks. Now, other versions don't have that because not all the manuscripts of the the ancient writings have that in there. Um, But I believe that that probably was put into some of the manuscripts because those scribes knew Jesus had actually said that. And we know that because of Acts 26, the scripture reading we just did. When Paul retells the story, he tells us that Jesus actually said more to him than just, 
why are you persecuting me? But it's hard for you to kick against the goads or the old King James, the pricks. We'll talk about that more in a minute. A couple of things to set this up. Number one, Paul didn't think he was doing anything wrong at this point in his life. Paul believed that what he was doing for God was the right thing. So his conscience at that moment, um, though I think we're going to find out might have been troubling him, he tells us in, in later writings that he had sort of lived all of his life with a good conscience before God. That he believed that what the right thing to do for him as a Jew was to persecute this false way that he believed uh, of these people that believed in this blasphemer Jesus. Now, there's a couple of other things about this story that stand out. Look again at verse five, 4 when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Now, when Paul says, who are you, Lord? He's not calling Jesus God there. He's just referring to him in a, a, a respectful way, like, sir, uh, who are you? He's not entirely sure who's talking to him. Um, but there's a couple of interesting things about this. Number one, uh, according to the scripture, when people persecute God's people, they are persecuting God. Jesus would say something like this in Matthew 25 about the judgment. If we feed people and clothe people and visit people, it's like we do it for Jesus. If we don't do it for people, it's like we're not doing it for Jesus. This, this ought to be an important warning to anybody that mistreats God's people. That when they do this, God could rightly say, why are you persecuting me? Paul had never directly persecuted Jesus, but just the people of Jesus. Now, the other thing that I want you to notice here is when Paul says, who are you? I wonder if this was confusing to him. It's bright light. He's not sure what's happening. Paul had already begun to persecute a number of people. Uh, was he thinking that maybe somebody was speaking to him out from the dead? Did he think he was being jumped by some you know, family members of somebody? This would have been an interesting conversation to get into Paul's head. Uh, but I want you now to think about the implications of this. This phrase, it's hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. If I hadn't grown up reading the Bible, I might not have understood that word. Not everybody in here knows what a goad is or a prick is for an animal. Um, but you can actually buy them on Amazon. I looked it up this morning. Uh, if you want to go buy a cattle prod or a goad, they're under $100. Some are like $40, some are like $90. It uh, depends on how long of one you want. But nowadays we electrocute the animal. So if we want a cow or a goat or a sheep or something to move, we prod them or we goad them with this thing. Back in those days, the reason that the old King James would say pricks is they were sharp ended things. Uh, and they would sort of prick the animal or goad the animal to go where they wanted it to go. Now think about what Jesus says here. Saul, it's hard for you to kick against those goads, that cattle prod. What does this make Jesus? I believe the implication here is Jesus is genuinely a shepherd. He is a rancher, a herdsman, a, a cattle rustler, whatever you want to say about him. That when Jesus looks down from where he is on his throne, he's trying to get people to obey him. And he does that perhaps in lots of ways. But I want to stop for a minute and I want to imagine having the conversation with Paul. And here's my question. 
Paul, what did Jesus mean by that? Like when he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, please tell me what it was that had been goading you. Like what had been pushing you? What what inside of you had been bothering you that Jesus says you were being resistant to? What what did that mean? Do you think Paul could have given some answers? Do you think he could have made a list and said, well, to be honest, I'd been feeling something inside for a while that I knew I should probably act upon. What could it have been? The reason I want to give this lesson today is I want us to understand something about ourselves and about the world that we live in. Number one, that God goads all of us. That each one of us constantly, in a number of ways, has a conscience that God is trying to get to so that we'll either obey Him, stop doing something we need to stop, or start doing something we need to do. But it's not just us. That the people that sometimes are against us, like Saul was against the Christians, they also are being goaded by God. And we need to understand our part in that. But let's ask Paul again, what was it that would have been goading him that he was being resistant to? Go back uh, a couple of chapters to chapter 7. Let's see when we're introduced to Paul here. Um, Chapter 7, we're going to learn around the end of the chapter um, that Paul or Saul was young, but he was standing there watching the stoning of Stephen. Stephen got up. And begin to preach a sermon. Paul would have heard the sermon. Listen to what Stephen said near the end of that sermon and near the end of his life. Look at verse 51, chapter 7. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, do you agree that that language from Stephen is very bold? I mean, that's a pretty hard thing to say to a group of religious Jews. He calls them stiff-necked. He calls them uncircumcised of heart. He says, you guys love the law, but you don't keep it. You guys have heard God's prophets speak, but you don't listen to them. Now let's imagine being in Saul's mind. He heard that. Do you think, looking back on it, Paul ever thought about this moment and felt that he was being convicted in a truthful way and That his heart was maybe touched by what he saw and heard Stephen say. I'm going to suggest to you that probably that was the case. I don't know this for sure. But the very next book of the Bible, the book of Romans. Did you know Paul uses almost the exact same language here in some of the things he said? When he writes in Romans chapter 2 that it's not the circumcision of the flesh that matters, but it's the circumcision of the heart That's the language of Stephen that he preached before Saul was converted. That what God really wants is people to be circumcised in their heart. Paul would write the same thing. Or when when Stephen says, you guys are resisting the Holy Spirit. 
the word of God, the prophet spoke about this righteous one. When you get to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul's going to say that the prophets and the law testified of this Jesus. Now, just think about it for a minute. Paul was somebody who knew the law. He had the Holy Spirit's message in his heart and in his mind. Do you suppose that aided him? As he began to think about what he was hearing about Jesus and listening to the teaching or listening to the words of these Christians, could it have been a goad in his heart? For sure. And then when he saw things like this, this moment where Stephen boldly proclaimed it, do you thought in his mind and heart he was wondering, how could somebody think like this and behave like this? Skip ahead to chapter 8. Chapter 8. Verse 1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, I'm speculating here. But I think this is a a reasonable speculation. There's a couple of things in this story that Saul would have watched happen. Number one, do you remember when Stephen was being stoned? Like they were literally throwing rocks at his head to crush his skull. And he's bleeding, the life's draining out of him. And here are all these people angry. What was it that Stephen said As he was dying. Go back up to chapter 7 around verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Do you think that got to Paul? This person praying for forgiveness and not being afraid to die. And then, according to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 there, Some men came and took the body of Stephen, buried it, and loudly lamented him. By the way, if they did that, they were outing themselves, weren't they? We're not afraid to say we belong with this one. We believe what he believed. Here we are. You're going to come get us? Come get us. And then the Bible tells us that Paul was dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. Now let's imagine those folks. There's a knock at the door. The door opens, maybe there's a child, maybe there's a mother or a grandmother, and Saul busts into the room and starts grabbing people. Do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in this Jesus? Yes, sir, we do. You're coming with me. Yes, sir. And on the journey, do you think they were spitting and cussing and striking him? Or do you think they would say things like, Brother Saul, you need to listen. You're not going to scare us. We know who we are and we know what's true. You think Paul could tell you stories about that? I met this girl one time or this old lady one time or this crippled man. And it didn't matter what I did to threaten them. They didn't seem threatened. And it didn't mean didn't matter how I treated them. They always were kind. Do you suppose things like that would have goaded Paul? urged him, bothered him. 
And when Jesus finally appeared and said, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? All of that would have flashed in his mind and he would have thought, you know, I know, I know that I see something different and I've heard things that I can't explain. I just wonder if that's what Paul would tell us. Let me back this up a minute. Let me ask you if you know that feeling uh, in your life. You heard the scripture, you read it, you saw it, you lived around people that were doing what was right, but you were being resistant, you weren't obeying God. And you'd come to church maybe, and at the end of the lesson, especially if it was a particularly good lesson, you'd stand up and you'd sing that invitation song, and you almost hated to hear that song, because you'd fidget back and forth, you'd try not to look at the song leader, because in your heart... You knew, you knew you were supposed to do something about it, but you weren't doing it. Do you remember that? And it might not just be about obeying the gospel. It could be that that lesson got to you about something and you knew that you needed to change that. Or you'd been lazy in your life and you weren't committed like you should. And you needed to, you needed to change. But every time you had that feeling, you push back on it, you push back on it. What's it going to take? I mean, is it going to take a bright light and Jesus bringing you to your knees and saying, why are you kicking against this? Let me ask a second question. Do you think people around you have that same feeling sometimes? People you love, that you work with, or family members, that you've always prayed for, that you've always tried to be an example. Do you think that maybe deep down under layers of resistance there's been a seed planted and there's something prodding or poking them. Do you think that might be there? What do you think? Just measure it from your own experience. You know in your own life how many people you came in touch with, encountered, that troubled you, that gave you a push, that made you walk around with a pebble in your shoe. It's vitally important, folks, that we understand how God works in the lives of other people through us. But let's talk about us for a minute. Um, does God goad you with people around you? I don't know this congregation, but have you ever known somebody that had extraordinary faith and it didn't and they went through some trial that you could hardly imagine? You know, like I don't know what it would be. They got sick. Somebody they loved got sick. Maybe they had a child and because of the special needs of that child, life would never be the same for them. And you kind of watched them work through it in a way that was radiant and joyful and faithful. And you just begin to think about your own life and think, what am I complaining about? You ever had that? I have so many stories like that. Uh, people back home. When I first moved to Minnesota, there was a bus in the parking lot of the church building. And when I got there, I thought, I might be at the wrong church. We're not supposed to have buses. But I, I started asking questions, and it turned out that the bus actually belonged to one of the members. Like, he had purchased it. And the reason that it was there is he was a quadriplegic. Like he had had an accident and he couldn't move anything from the neck down. And the only way he could get to church is if somebody would get in that 
van that he bought and go get him and bring him. His name was Gus. Called it the Gus bus. I didn't get to be around Gus for very long. But he was like no one I'd ever met. He wasn't somebody who had been born that way. He was someone that had actually injured himself because he loved life so much. He had jumped off a dock to dive through an inner tube and his neck hit the thing and it broke his neck and he was never the same. But Gus loved God and would see you and smile and say, God bless you. He shamed me. Maybe that's not the right word. He goaded me. God used him to tell me to do better about complaining, about faithfulness. That's one way. What about, uh, you ever met somebody that gave God a lot, even though they had very little to give? Somebody in their poverty, uh, they were the ones who would do the most for others. They didn't have a lot of time because they were always doing something, but what's the old adage? If you want something to get done, give it to a busy person, right? But did that challenge you, those of you that had the time? Why are the busy people the ones that are always giving the most? And it may not be that their resource was time. Maybe it was just money. There's some people up there in Minnesota. They literally, they have nothing. I mean, they make their rent if they make their rent month to month. But when somebody says somebody needs help, guess who's the first one to come up and hand somebody whatever money they got in their wallet? You ever been goaded by somebody like that? What about obedience to God at high cost? Um, You know, for me to obey God in my life, I didn't lose anybody that important. Not really. Uh, My father serves God. My siblings serve God. Now, there were a few family members that because we were doing what was right, we just, it was a distancing that happened. And there were friends of mine that I grew up with that I loved that because I served God, I, I didn't have the same kinds of friendships as them. But I could introduce you to some people in Minnesota right now that every week they show up to worship with us. And because they chose to do what was right, they've lost everybody. Like they don't even have a family to call. You ever been goaded by that? Felt like God was telling you, hey, you think you got to give something up for me? Just look around. I suggest to you that this is the way God works. That through his Holy Spirit, the word that he wrote, he meant for it to be a goad, a sword that would pierce your heart and get into the thoughts and intents of your heart. But that God would also use people who were obedient and say, look at them and feel what you need to feel about their example. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me show you a couple of examples of this. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame 
and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, this couple of verses at the end of, or at the beginning of chapter 12, in some ways I think could belong in chapter 11. You ever wondered why God wrote Hebrews 11? Like, why all these stories of people that were faithful and by faith they left their past behind and moved forward to a a place they couldn't see, but because they believed in it and because they believed in God, they just kept moving forward. Why did he tell those stories? Well, here in 12.1, so that he could say, hey, y'all, look around you. There are a whole bunch of people that should goad you into this kind of faithfulness. And it's not just the cloud of witnesses. Do you see there in verse 3 when we're told to consider him specifically? This Jesus that gave up everything, that endured the cross, despising the shame. And for the joy set before him did what we were supposed to do and should do every day. There's countless times the Bible will talk like this. But let me ask you. Do you know these people? Not the ones in history, but in this room. The ones of whom the world's not worthy. The ones who have run their race with endurance. They have let go of the things in their life that was dragging them down. And here they are as they get toward the finish line of their life. You ever thought about their friends? You guys got a lot of gray hairs in here. But you younger people, have you ever thought about their friends? If I was to ask them to make a list of all the people they've known through their life that started to serve God and bailed out, started to do right, but left him behind. Do you think they'd have a list for you? Do you think they'd talk about times their heart was broken? And yet right here in front of us, they sit, they stand, they live, they do what they're supposed to. Why? Thank God for them. Because they goad us, they encourage us, they show us how we should be. Let me show you some other passages. I want to show you just a few things in the book of Luke. Go back to Luke 21. You know, over there in the Hebrews passage, we were told to fix our eyes and consider so much of life is about learning to look at things and think about them. I'm not always good at that, but Jesus was very good at that. Here's an example. Luke 21 verse one. He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. Now notice for a minute here. Here's what we learn about Jesus in this verse. These verses. Number one. He watched. He paid attention. And not only did he see things, he saw things that I don't think everybody saw. I assume most people saw the rich, but I wonder how many people saw what the widow did. And it's not just that he saw it, it's that he saw it and he thought about it and he thought about it long enough to say these words. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 3. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. 
And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with votive stone, or beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things that you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left upon uh, one stone uh, upon another, which will not be torn down. There's a contrast in this text. You see there in verse 6, he's like, you guys are looking at all this shiny, flashy stuff in the temple. While they were looking at that, he's looking at this woman. And he doesn't just say, hey, look at what the woman gave. He says, look at what the woman gave in comparison to them. Do a math problem here, Jesus says. She gave more. Now, somebody says, but she only gave a couple mites. And he says, yes, but now do it in a percentage. The rich, with their $100,000, gave in 1000 Her, with her two mites, gave in two mites. Now, percentage-wise, who wins? The widow does. Why did Jesus tell us that he saw this? Why does Luke record for us this event? Now, there might be a whole bunch of reasons for that. If you go back to the end of chapter 20, part of it was a rebuke on the Pharisees who were devouring widows' houses. You know, the Pharisees made it hard on everybody. They made it seem like, old woman, if you got too much, you better give it all because it's got you got to give enough. And part of what this might have been is Jesus was frustrated that this woman who gave two mites walked out of there needing help and nobody was helping her. So it could be a rebuke. But on the other hand, this is an example of somebody who loved God so much that they gave, and this is an interesting phrase, all that she had to live on. If you have an older version, it says she put in all her life. Because if it wasn't for that, she had nothing else. Have you ever wondered how Jesus dealt with temptation? How Jesus found the strength to always do the right thing and keep moving forward? You ever wondered about that? Was it just innate in him because he was God? Did he have to use the world around him to like be encouraged? I'll tell you something. I wonder if Jesus thought this. I gave up all my life to come here for you. I'll tell you one of the reasons I can keep doing it is because I just saw somebody else do it. That woman gave up all her life to serve God. You think that goaded Jesus? Pushed him on? Encouraged him? And if it did him, what about us? By the way, do you know that woman? Do you know that person? Look back at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Jesus was a master storyteller. So even if it wasn't something he could observe, it was something that he could talk about and show. Um, You remember this interaction here in Luke 10 around verse 25. A lawyer asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? Verse 26. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That had been a great conversation. But the man had to go on and ask another question. And the question he asked was, well, yeah, I get that, but who's my neighbor? Like, how do I actually obey that law? And we're told that he was trying to justify himself because he didn't really love his neighbor. He knew what the law said, but he didn't do it. 
So Jesus tells the Good Samaritan story. I don't know what you think of that story. It's one of my favorites. Because the story begins with a man who is completely foolish. Did you know that? If you look at verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and stripped him. They beat him and uh, left him half dead. The Jewish people of that time, they called that road from Jerusalem to Jericho the Bloody Way. That was their nickname for it. Because they knew you'd be a fool to travel that road alone. Everybody gets jumped on that road. It's a dangerous road. So here's what you've got. You've got a guy who makes a bad decision and ends up in a mess because of the decisions he made in his life. Time out. You ever met somebody like that? They're in financial ruin. Their life's a wreck. And you ask a couple of questions and you realize, well, you brought this on yourself. You know what a lot of religious people do when they find somebody like that? They say a little prayer and they walk around on the other side of the road. Because after all, it's just consequence of their own bad decisions. Foolishness. So Jesus tells a story about these religious folks that keep walking on the other side. Until this Samaritan comes along. Somebody who supposedly wasn't godly at all, according to Jewish people. But look at what he does in verse 33. Samaritan, who was on a journey, came up to him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said... Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, uh, I will repay you. Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Um, And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus said, go and do the same. Uh, Question about the Samaritan. What's most impressive to you in that story? When the man sees the man lying there, what's most impressive? He didn't just see him. What does the text say? He uh, came up to him. He felt compassion for him. He took his own resources, oil, wine, not inexpensive things, put them on the man's wounds, lifted the man up, put him on an animal. It's like putting him in your car, by the way. Could you imagine putting a bloody, festering person in your vehicle, your nice car? And... Driving him to the nearest inn. Is that is that impressive? Is it impressive that he goes to the innkeeper and says, Hey, here's the money, I'll pay the bill. Is that impressive to you? You know, it took me a long time to see this. But look at verse 35 again. At the end of verse 34, at the beginning of verse 35, it sounds like to me he spent the night with the guy. Am I misreading that? He took care of him, and on the next day, You ever been in a room with somebody you didn't know who had been beat up and left for dead and you, you, not a nurse, not a doctor, you stayed awake to make sure they didn't die. Wiped their brow, bandaged their wounds. You ever done that? Me either. Maybe you have. What's the point of this story? Why did Jesus tell it? 
I mean, when Jesus gets done with the story, it's interesting to me, he never even answered the guy's question. The guy's question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, who proved to be a neighbor? I mean, he switched the whole thing. And when the guy finally said, well, the guy who proved to be a neighbor was the guy who showed mercy on the guy, Jesus said, then stop worrying about who your neighbor is and go be one. What do you think that did to the guy's heart? Prick, goad, push. Thank God for stories like this and people like this. Let me tell you who the Good Samaritan is in Minnesota, in our church. His name is Brett Thielen. You will probably never met meet Brett. Maybe you will if you come up there. When we met Brett, he was in prison. And Brett was in prison because he was a successful businessman who had done a lot of wrong things, and they threw him in there for it. In prison, he lost his family, he lost his business, but he found God. And when he got out, Brett began to rebuild business and do what he could for his family and he kept serving the Lord can I tell you a way that Brett Thielen goads me he now has a company that is doing amazing up there filled with ex-convicts people that I won't get anywhere near people that I won't give a chance to people who make me uncomfortable and a lot of them worship with us now But he sees these people bleeding out on the side of the road and he's got a heart for them and he does what he can do. He gives them a job and he encourages them. Do you think he's been taken a few times? Oh yeah. Somebody just recently drove off with one of his vans filled with stuff. And the guy finally came back. He'd lost a bunch of it or he'd sold a bunch of it and Brett gave him another chance. People like that goad me. How about you? Same text, verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted in all her prep, with all her preparations. And she came up and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then let her help, then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Again, think about this story. Women, do any of you have a sister like this? And I'm not going to say which kind. You know, there's always a couple different kinds of people in a family. There's like the one who's the Tasmanian devil, you know, like people are around and they're just like spinning and doing everything and everything's like got to be done and you got to put on a spread and you got to do this and you got to do that. And then there's the one that that person thinks is lazy and looks at them and says, how come you're not helping me? Jesus, I'm obviously the one who works hard. Tell her to work hard. And lo and behold, Jesus says, I think you got it wrong, you know. Only one thing is necessary. By the way, I read a commentary one time that thinks what Jesus meant by that was, I don't need a big spread of food, I just need a sandwich. Give me one thing. That's actually what the guy said. 
He's like, one thing is necessary. Just give me something to eat and then sit down and listen. I don't think that's what Jesus meant, but that's an interesting take. If you've got somebody in your family who doesn't doesn't get so distracted from life, that isn't so worked up about everything, that doesn't feel like they got to take the whole world on their shoulders and they just quietly serve the Lord and listen to what He says, and somehow that annoys you, thank God for them. Let them go, dude. Let them teach you peace. And that you don't need to worry about every single thing in the world. You don't have to watch all the news channels to figure out what's happening everywhere. You can just trust God and do what He says. Let me finish the lesson. Do any of these things make sense to you in your life? Like, you know when I tell these stories, when we read these scriptures, yeah, I got to do better. And God's goading me. God's pushing me. God's trying to get me to a place and I've been resistant. Good. That's what I wanted. But now, here is how I want to leave this lesson. Do you suppose there's anybody out there in your life who feels it too? And because of your demeanor, because of your kindness, because of the things you've shared, because of the way you live your life, that Jesus has been goading them and prodding them. It's without exception. Without exception, when somebody becomes a Christian, I will ask them this question. Hey, how long have you been thinking about this? When did this begin? You know what I've never heard? I've never heard somebody say, I just thought of it today. Every one of them can tell you countless stories of somebody in their life and moments in their life where it felt like God was trying to get their attention. They'll list names. They'll tell stories about moments where they were goaded and they resisted it. And you know what, Christians? We need to know it's happening every day. If we're going to work with God, if we're going to be partners with Him, We've got to be the people that when Saul comes through the door and wants to drag us off to prison, we pray for his forgiveness and we go the extra mile and we do it radiantly and joyfully for one reason. Because we love them. And our Savior is a shepherd who wants every sheep saved. And the way he goes is through his word and through his people. And through the conscience of every human being. Thanks for your attention this morning. I want to leave you with uh, one last verse. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 55 says this. But when this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your goad? Does your say that? Sting. Do you know it's the same word? And I don't know why that is. I mean, I'm not sure why sometimes the word might be translated goad and sometimes it might be translated sting, but it's the same word. And there's something really interesting to me about that. 
When Paul would take somebody off to prison or threaten them with their life, here were the options. The Christian could either see the sting of death or they they could see the sting of not doing the right thing. And here's what's crazy about this. You're going to feel it one way or the other. You're either going to resist those goads all your life and not do what's right, but one day when you die, it's going to be terrible. We have to decide as Christians how we're going to use this. But if we can smile in the face of death and understand that it it doesn't sting, then we can learn to be the goad in other people's lives. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. If you're not a Christian, we want to offer you the chance to become one. If you need our prayers or help, let us know how we can help you this morning as we stand and sing.